church, let me invite you to open up the scriptures with me this morning to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, as we continue our study in the book of Psalms. And today we do continue uh, looking to the book of Psalms to guide and to instruct us as God's people. What's incredible about this particular book uh, is that God's people have been using the Psalms as a guide to prayer and to praise for some 3,000 years. And so church, when we open this particular portion of God's word, we are, pre- we are peering uh, into the spirituality of King David as he uh, runs from foreign armies. Uh, we are gazing into the prayer life of Israel uh, as they are awaiting deliverance from exile in Babylon. And we are witnessing the dialogue between Jesus and his father, Uh, We're joining the company of the redeemed across this earth in conversing with the Almighty God. Indeed, through the Psalms, God invites us to know Him. He invites us to pray. He invites us to praise. He invites us to listen. So during the next few weeks, we're going to be looking uh, at the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking specifically at some lesser-known Psalms uh, over the next four weeks. Uh, But for these first couple of weeks, we are beginning with Psalms 1 and 2 because together these two texts provide a proper introduction to the whole. Psalm 1 that we looked into last week emphasizes human responsibility and Psalm 2 that we'll look at this morning emphasizes the divine provision of a king and the right response to it. So let's look at it together today as you find your place in Psalm 2. Join me standing once again uh, for the reading of God's word. And the scriptures read this way. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's bow together. And Lord, we do acknowledge today that you are a refuge for us Lord, that you are a shelter. You are a safe place. Uh, You are not only the mighty God who rules and reigns over all, but you are a God who is with us, a God who cares for us, a God who knows us intimately and desires to be known by us. So Lord, guide us now as we look to your word. Remind us of the presence and the power of your spirit. Conform us more and more into the image of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. Well, we're in the heart of the 
2018 Winter Olympics being played this year in Pyeongchang, South Korea. That's just a fun word to say. Have you tried to say this word? Uh, Pyeongchang. You, you need to say it a lot. Enjoy it while it's popular. I sort of feel like I'm playing laser tag when I say that. Pyeongchang. That's, that's probably too much. I shouldn't have done it. But I don't know if anybody watched uh, the Women's Alpine Skiing Super G event a couple days ago. I think it was on Friday. Uh, But those ladies were flying down the slopes, zigzagging back and forth down the trail between the flags at some 55 miles per hour. That's fast. We've got some students, as James shared earlier, on a ski trip uh, this weekend. Hopefully none of them are going 55 miles per hour. But I absolutely love snow skiing. I really do. I've been several times. I haven't been in a number of years. The last time I went, I think, was uh, to Winter Place, where they are now. And though I love snow skiing, uh, to be honest, my, my first time down the mountain did not go so well. True story. <clears throat> so as a 15 or 16-year-old uh, high schooler, I was on my first uh, ski trip. It was a church trip. I was with a youth group. I spent an hour that morning alongside a few other of my peers in ski school, learning the basics of getting my skis and my boots on and off and getting up when falling into the snow. Uh, didn't actually practice any uh, skiing during that hour, mind you. So once we completed those tasks, we were off on our own. And so we hit the lift and got off the lift. Upon getting off the lift, turned left and went down the first trail I saw, was ready to go down the mountain the trail. Uh, was labeled as a blue slope. Now, if you know anything about snow skiing, then you know that green slopes are for beginners. Blue slopes are for intermediates. Was I an intermediate my first day of skiing? Most definitely not. Uh, But I wasn't too bright. And so I headed down that slope, and in the first few seconds, all was well. Uh, but then I began to realize that this hill is rather steep. This, this snow is rather slick. And so I began to build up speed faster and faster, not knowing how to stop or slow down or turn. Just kept going. I see that I'm coming to a landing soon, and so all will be okay. The only problem is that that landing is filled with innocent bystanders who are waiting to get on the lift. So I'm flying down this mountain, approaching them. I wasn't going 55 miles per hour, I'm sure, but it sure felt like it at the time. And thankfully, those people who were near me saw me coming, were able to get out of the way, uh, and all was well. I soon came to a halt, caught my breath, and regained my composure. The only problem was that someone else had also seen me. Mrs. Ski Patrol. And so she comes over and she says, it looks like you're a little bit out of control. You need to slow down a little bit. And she proceeds to write a giant X with a permanent marker on the back of my lift ticket and says that this is my warning. If I receive another one, I'll lose my lift ticket for the weekend. Uh, So as you can imagine... Uh, From that point on, I was a bit more cautious, at least um, for the day. And there'll be other stories that I'm sure you'll hear about some point beyond today. But, you know, it's impossible for us to see how skilled 
an Olympic skier really is unless we have someone to compare them to. And I read a comment yesterday that said every Olympic event should include one average person competing for reference. (laughs) I think that's a good idea. I mean, can you imagine if I or you uh, were there in Pyeongchang and we were awaiting our turn to compete for the gold medal? In that event, it doesn't matter what we ate for breakfast. It doesn't matter what kind of uh, peppy music we listened to to psych ourselves up for the big event. It doesn't matter what strategies we considered before the run. Uh, we would not stand a chance. Our performance would be laughable when compared to the Olympic athlete. Now, church, that kind of useless planning resembles what's going on here in the original context of Psalm 2. The context is likely the coronation of Israel's king, a text that was probably used time and again at the coronation of the nation's king and times of leadership change or times of vulnerability. The king was charged with solidifying borders, but surrounding kings saw this as their time, as their opportunity to expand their borders. And so the neighbors of Israel, perhaps the Edomites or the Moabites or the Philistines or the Ammonites or others who often fought with Israel, gathered together, the leaders of these pagan nations, they gathered together to plot a rebellion. That's the picture of Psalm 2. To devise and to discuss a strategy for winning. And the only problem is, like me in the Winter Olympics, they did not stand a chance. They can't win this fight. Because opposing the Davidic king is foolish. It is opposing God himself. The Davidic king is God's anointed, verse 2. And opposition to him is opposition to God. To reject David was to reject David's God, our God, the only God. And yet this is what they did. And friends, this is what many still do today. Many foolishly reject God's authority. Many foolishly reject God's authority. These rebels are merely, verse 2, kings of the earth. But the Lord, verse 4, is the one enthroned in heaven. To oppose him is utter foolishness. And these pagan kings were perhaps unaware that they were trying to overflow the, the, the very plans of God. To them, submission to Israel was like chains and shackles, verse 3, and they were ready to break free. But they were misguided and mistaken. Freedom comes from submission to God, not rebellion against God. To reject God's king is to reject God, and God's plans will succeed. God declares that his kingdom is unstoppable. God declares in his word, he declares right here in his word, that his kingdom is unstoppable. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He's responding to the rebellion of these foreign armies. He says, uh, the text says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is the response of the Lord 
to the rebellion of the wicked, i.e. unbelievers. Their reign is limited to the sphere of the earth. He reigns over them from the heavens. He is the Lord, meaning he is the master, implying that everyone, even the kings of foreign lands, are his servants. Opposing God and his plan is totally ridiculous. It is utterly foolish. God speaks up from heaven saying, David is my king. I chose him. He reigns from his palace on top of Mount Zion to oppose my king is to oppose me. And if and when that particular message sinks in, when unbelievers hear God speak and realize that their opposition to God's messenger is opposition to God himself, then like the sailors in the story of Jonah, upon realizing the might of Jonah's God, they too will be terrified. God speaks, confronting sinners' foolish rebellion, and when God speaks, we must listen. So church, hear God's message. Hear his message. What is his message? Essentially, he says here, my plans involve a king, an anointed one, a Messiah. Do not oppose him, for if you do, you are opposing me. And you don't want to oppose me, for I'm in a category altogether different than you. So friends, it doesn't matter if you're a CEO. You may be the owner of a lucrative business. You may be a successful attorney. You may be a winning politician, a star athlete, a scholarship student, a longtime Sunday school teacher, a missionary, a regular preacher, but whoever you are, And whatever you have accomplished, you are subordinate to the Almighty God who rules and reigns over all. He is Lord. So pause. Let's pause and hear his message. Every time we open the scriptures, let's pause. Let's slow down. Let's hear from the Lord. Let's invite God to speak to us. Let's hear his message and let's believe his message. Believe God's word. Believe God's word. Don't simply brush off what he says. Take it to heart, believe it, for he is God. And those who believe his word will want to know his word. They will want to know him more, and he makes himself known through his written word. Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Verse 2, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law or his word day and night. See, God responds to the rebellious plans of the wicked by declaring that his kingdom is unstoppable. He is God, thus his plans will ultimately be fulfilled. Hear his message, believe his word, and take comfort in his plan. Believers, take comfort in in his plan. If you are one of his, if you are a child of God, if you've been saved by the grace of God, if you worship the one and only God, then you are called upon, we are called upon to take comfort in God's plan. Many continue to foolishly reject God's authority. This is the sinful way and the way of the world. And so we have school shootings. And so we have tyrannical Dictators threatening nuclear attacks. 
And we have perpetually unfaithful spouses and abusive fathers and husbands and habitually promiscuous singles compromising and ignoring God's standard for sexuality and those with deep-seated hatred for those of a different skin color. And church, the list goes on and on and on, recounting the ways that sinners living in a broken and fallen world reject God and rebel against His kingdom and His plans. But as people of faith, as people who believe in this God and who know this God, who long to know Him more and to serve Him, to worship Him, we can and should be comforted by His plan. A plan that involves his king ruling with power and justice. Church, God's king will rule with power according to God's plan. The scriptures are clear here that God's king will ultimately rule with power according to God's plan. In the psalm, God's messenger speaks up, verse 7. Presumably David or another king in the line of David confidently declaring what God has promised him. Verse 7, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, verse 8, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. In other words, the king declares his right to the throne, saying, in essence, God decreed this. God promised this. This is a reference to the Davidic covenant recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, where God promised David that that his throne would be established forever. That he would have sovereignty over the nations and that he would be as a son to God. So let's hear God's word to David recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord says, When your days, speaking to David, are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod welded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house And your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So like Psalm 2, there's father-son language in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this father-son language here is figurative. Expressing that the king's relationship with God would include an inheritance. It would be a special relationship with an inheritance like that of a father and a son. The king, as God's representative, would crush or defeat those who rebel against him. So God's promise here should have and would have encouraged the Israelites down through the centuries when they were threatened by enemies or when they were taken captive in a foreign land. They should have been comforted during that time of exile, reminded that God is sovereign and that there would be a future dominion where the Davidic throne would be restored. Things would get better. A message that ought to encourage us as God's people today. Things would get better because God had promised that it would be so. God's anointed king would rule 
and would reign forever and ever, triumphing over the wicked and establishing the glory of God across the earth. Now we now know this king as the king of kings. He is the Lord. He is not simply another Messiah, another anointed one, but he is the Messiah, Christ the Lord. Whereas the other kings established by God were like a son to him. This king is truly God's son. And the author of Hebrews makes this link quite clear for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the scriptures read this way. So Jesus, the son of God, that's the he here, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The language of Psalm 2, echoing also 2 Samuel chapter 7, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Davidic king. Friends, he is the one who who fulfills the prophecies and the promises. He is the one who reigns forever and ever over all. And this text, Psalm 2, no longer applies to any human king. In other words, we can't take this message and automatically apply it to uh, the leader of our nation or the king of another nation because Ultimately, this text has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the ultimate Davidic King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of the world. He is the Messiah or anointed one. Same word is found in Psalm 2, verse 2, who rules and reigns on high. And this King, this Messiah will come again, crushing all rebellion and establishing his kingdom forever and ever. So submit to the Messiah. Friends, submit to the Messiah. Submit to the Messiah. Bow before the Messiah. Submit to Jesus, God's Son, and our King. What might this look like for us? Well, we began to submit to the Messiah when we recognize our need for Him. When we recognize that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor when we recognize that life isn't all about me, that there is one who rules and reigns. There's a creator of life, a sustainer of life, and a redeemer of life who longs to redeem my life and your life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Submitting to this one as the Messiah means recognizing that he is supreme and that he is supreme in all things. That he is before all things and that in him all things hold together. That he is the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of this day. That he must be first place in my life. That he must come before my pursuits of a successful career. He must come before my longings for my children to succeed. He must come before my hobbies, before all that I do. Jesus is supreme. He is Lord. I must submit to him. We are called to submit to him as the anointed one of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Bow before him, for to reject him is to reject God. And those who reject the Son of God, the Messiah, do not worship the living God. For they directly violate the instructions of Psalm 2. Rejecting the king and the kingdom that God has established. Church, this includes vast 
swaths of people today devoted to religion, devoted to Christless religion that is the equivalent of rejecting the one true God. So as people of faith in this God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must take the call of the psalmist to heart and declare that all may join God's kingdom and experience His blessings. That all may join, that all are invited The message is for all to hear. The warning is for all to take heed. All may join God's kingdom and experience His his blessing. That's where this text ends. Verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And celebrate His rule with trembling. In other words, it's not too late. Time to warn those who oppose God's king is now. The great Davidic king has come. Jesus has has come. The one whose kingdom will have no end. Be warned, unbelievers, for he will come again. He is coming again. The king will return. And when he returns, according to the scriptures, according to God, the wrath of God will lead to the destruction of those who are not his But those who repent and trust in Him for life and salvation become part of His kingdom and will experience His blessings forever and ever and ever. Friends, let this image found in the Scriptures, Revelation chapter 19, this image of King Jesus' return grab your attention this morning. John writes as he sees this vision of the returning Christ. He says, coming out of His mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Psalm 2 language. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, Jesus Christ is coming. He is coming, and when He comes, those who are not His, those who have not received the provision of His grace, will endure the judgment and the wrath of the only God. So brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, Christians, believers, this message is urgent, so warn the world. Warn the world. The message is urgent. If we are to take the text of Scripture seriously, if we are to take God seriously, then we have to acknowledge that the message is urgent. The King will return. Warn the world. Warn them of God's king and God's plan before it's too late. Warn them that the wise submit to King Jesus. The wise submit to King Jesus. Are you wise? Do you fit the biblical description of wisdom? Do you submit to God? The wise submit to King Jesus. Are you wise? Do you worship Him? Do you serve Him? Do you trust Him? Is He your Savior? Do you obey Him? For He is the King of kings, the Anointed One, the Messiah, and the Son of God who will rule the world forever and ever and ever. Submit to this King today and warn others to do so. Again, what does this look like? This probably doesn't look like you and me, all of us gathered on our street corners, shouting a message of condemnation, calling people to repent. Perhaps there's a place for that. But far more likely for you and for me, this means 
Intentional gospel living where God plants us. Intentional gospel conversations. Weaving the gospel into everyday conversations as the Lord gives us opportunity. Let's warn the world. Let's begin by warning those in our very households. Let's warn those who live next door to us. Let's warn the parents of the children down in the cul-de-sac whom your children and my children play with. Let's warn those that we continually run into at Starbucks or Herdmont Park or Walmart or Publix or in the workplace or in the school. Let's warn the world. The King has come. He has provided salvation. He has given us His righteousness. He calls us His own by grace through faith in Him. But He is coming. And He will carry out the judgment and the wrath of God on all those who are not His forever and ever. Let's warn the world to bow before Him. Let's bow together. And Father, we pray that that would be so. Beginning in our lives, Lord, lead us to bow before you. Lord, to acknowledge who you are, to recognize that that we are not king, that I am not king, that ultimately you alone are king. Lord, that you are sovereign, that you are the beginning and the end, you're the alpha and the omega, you are the one that stands outside of time, that all life owes its existence to you. And because you made us, Lord, we are accountable to you. Father, forgive us for being like the pagan kings and rebelling against you, going our own way. But Lord, thank you for your patience with us, for your mercy, for your grace, Lord, for your plan, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for your provision to overcome our sin and to make us clean. Father, lead us to bow before you today and always to serve you, to surrender to you, to worship you as the only God, and then to invite others to do so. Or give us courage, give us grace, give us truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.